Well, what a morning already. Um, if you have kids, they can uh, line up to my right, and the teachers will accompany them to their classroom. We do have classes up through second grade today. So, um, and if you have not checked in your kids, be sure to check them in before you send them off. Um, I will say I'm happy to preach with wet sleeves more often if we want to keep this going. So, um, as they uh, head back, can you turn with me to Ephesians 1, verse 3, where we will pick up the reading. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 917. So I suppose we are showing our cards today. Um, election, predestination, God's sovereignty over salvation. If you read church planting books, you can find a lot of advice on how to grow a church plant. Among that advice, one thing you will not find is preach on predestination in week two, okay? But here we are. When I chose to begin Antioch Church with a series through the book of Ephesians, I wasn't trying to pick a fight. Uh, that's kind of what my 20s were for. I hope that I've grown past that. But rather, I chose the book of Ephesians because I sensed that it would give us an opportunity to set a solid foundation in the gospel and its implications, that it would give us ample opportunities to look deeply at our union with Christ and then our union with each other. And so that's the aim this morning, our, our practice is to just preach through passage or pre preach through books of the Bible taking what is before us. As we take up the topic this this morning that's often been divisive in churches. My my aim this morning is not primarily to offer a defense of reformed theology. Rather my aim is to continue on with the apostle Paul praising God for the truth that is before us today. I don't think that this is going to be that sermon that you send to your non-reformed friends that finally convinces them. It's the mic drop sermon. Oh, now they're convinced. I don't think that that's going to be it. Um, we are happy to have some of the conversations and give you some answer questions and do all, all of that. But in this text here today, or in my time here this morning, I'm not offering a defense. I'm coming worshiping. When we talk about the subject in theological terms, even the language itself sounds severe. Election, predestination, God's decorative will. But this is what is striking to me as I spent time in the text this week. I think I've spent so much of my life defending my theological home, that I haven't spent enough time just living in it, rejoicing in it, filled with grace by it. The language we, we wrestle with in this text before us is not severe language at all. It's beautiful. It's the kind of language you expect to find in an outburst of praise. He chose us. Holy and blameless, 
in love, adoption to himself, the good pleasure of his will. So today, I repeat, my aim is not to defend the truths. My aim is just to spend time worshiping him for them. Read with me Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, as we do every week, we thank you for your word as a precious gift to us. Father, help us now to submit under your word, to seek to understand it, Lord, but to come to it humbly, seeking to to submit underneath you and not to stand over it in judgment. Father, by your spirit, do the work of guiding us into all truth and do the work of making us more like Christ. Father, I pray that you would encourage those here today that need to be encouraged, that you would comfort those that need to be comforted, and Lord, that you would convict those that need to be convicted. Uh, Father, I pray that you would do all of this for your glory. And Father, as we uh, approach a difficult subject, Lord, I pray that you would give us much mercy and grace, much uh, humility to ask questions and all of that, Lord, that you would guard us from division. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we saw that all of 3 through 14 is an outburst of praise to God the Father for the blessings accomplished by God the Son and then applied by God the Spirit. Further, we saw that there's a refrain of to the praise of his glory that comes back in each of those sections, and we're reminded that our salvation is not ultimately about us, but about God receiving his glory. This week, we carry on with those things in mind. Our text is situated in an outburst of praise to him. And all that it illuminates for us today is aimed at bringing God the glory that he is due. Today, as Paul elaborates on all of the blessings bestowed in Christ by the Spirit, we turn to look more in detail at how God the Father planned our salvation even before the foundation of the world. In this text, we see one main verb, he chose us, which is then elaborated on with some additional explanatory clauses. And then we see a second verb, he predestined us, which serves to elaborate further on God's choosing. He chose us. We are saved by God's initiative. This morning, as we've celebrated baptism, our minds recalled 
that time in our own lives. Each of us here today that are Christians had a time in our conversion where we reflected on our sin, reflected on the gospel, and then we threw ourselves by faith on the mercy of Jesus, vowing to follow him with the rest of our lives. In doing so, it sure felt like we were making a choice, that we were exercising our will, that we were initiating something. And in some sense, we certainly were. But what so feels like the start for us, what feels like the first domino to fall, really is quite deep into the story. If you look at Ephesians 1, the moment that the Holy Spirit intersected your life, granting you the faith to believe, that happens down in verse 13 and 14. God has been at work long before that. As I've said before, it's common to say, uh, I found Jesus. And as I've said before, he wasn't lost and I wasn't looking for him. The Spirit came and found you because Jesus died for you because the Father chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. You're a little bit late to the party. (laughs) There's no salvation apart from responding in faith. Don't mishear me. That's one misconception you can have about election. So you believe that someone can be saved apart from placing their faith in Christ just because they are chosen? No, try again. We believe because they are chosen, then they can place their faith in Christ to be saved. But when we do, when the Holy Spirit brought about the conviction of sin and regenerated our heart and the scales fall from our eyes so that we can see him for who he is and then go running to him, that's because long ago in eternity past, God chose us. Christian, he chose you. And he did so before the foundation of the world. Is that not mind-blowing to think about? Consider that for a moment. Long before you even existed, God the Father planned and purposed that he would save you by faith and bring you into his people. Before you were even born, before you had ever sinned and were guilty before him, he had chosen you in Christ to be saved. More than that, this occurred before the foundation of the world. So, church, do you know what I think we're supposed to do with mind-blowing, incomprehensible truth like that? These great truths, and there's, there's many, the Eternality of God, the Trinity, the divine and human nature of Christ. These great truths that we could never possibly work out in our minds. Here's what I think that we're supposed to do with them. I think we're supposed to do the work of trying to work them out. Some of us come to truths like this and we're just a little bit too pragmatic. Like we come from the jump 
knowing I'm never going to be able to figure that out. And then we stop there, never even contemplating them further. It's kind of a theological agnosticism. It's, I could never know, so why try? Just skip to the application. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Why waste time contemplating something that I couldn't figure out? I would say because that time's not wasted. I think what we're supposed to do with truths too great for us, like election before the foundation of the world, is to stop for a moment, think on them deeply, see how far down the thought trail you can get, and when you hit a dead end, double back, try a different way, see how far you can get there, and keep going, exercising your mind to exhaustion, where then you can tap out and say, these truths are too great for me to understand. God is completely beyond me. And we land in the same place, but we do so with greater reverence, greater awe, a deeper experiential knowledge that God is so much higher than us. Like a trampoline, if you want to jump down softly, you're going to rise up softly. But if you jump down with the full force of everything you can muster, then you are going to pop up with the same force. I think that these truths too high for us are given, that we could give it all we God, and then pop up with deep-seated reverence and awe at his transcendence. So church, here's my encouragement to you. Let your brain hurt a little bit at this thought. He chose you in Christ before he ever spoke the world into existence. He set you apart to be saved before the very fall that made your salvation necessary. We are saved by God's initiative. He was the first to move toward you. You are in Christ today because he set his sights on you and he said, mine. And then he sovereignly orchestrated all that was necessary to bring you to faith in him. As Jesus says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And Paul says in Romans that our calling and our justification, the coming to Christ, the responding in faith, that's in the middle of the beautiful chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are saved by God's initiative in that before the foundation of the world. Going further, it says, we are saved by our union with Christ. He chose us in him. As we Noted last week, some form of the phrase in Christ or in him or in the beloved is used 11 times in the opening to this book of Ephesians. And if you've uh, taken up the challenge that I laid down last week to read through the whole book of Ephesians aloud once per week 
my family did it this week, we can tell you that it takes approximately 16 minutes and seven seconds, and that's with a little bit of correction to a five-year-old. So um, if you've taken that up, then hopefully this week, look for other mentions as you go forward of in Christ or in Christ Jesus. Union with Christ is an ongoing theme of the book of Ephesians, so much so that we've made it the subtitle of our series. And look, I find this no less mind-blowing than election. I think it's easy to grasp the idea of, easier, I should say, to grasp the idea of union with Christ post-conversion. Like certainly there was a time in each of our lives, many of you that may be still here now, where we were separated from Christ. Ephesians 2 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. There was a time we were separated from him, and yet by faith we entered into Christ. And yet there's another sense on a mind-blowing, incomprehensible level in which we've been united to Christ since he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I think John Murray is helpful on this in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. He says, the Father elected from eternity, but he elected in Christ. We are not able to understand all that is involved, but the fact is plain enough that there was no election of the Father in eternity apart from Christ. As far back as we can go in tracing salvation to its fountain, we find union with Christ. It is not something tacked on. It is there from the outside, set, outset. From the outset in eternity past, in some mystical way, we who are Christians have been united with Christ. God chose us in Christ, and then we were united with Christ in his death on the cross, as Paul says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. Or as Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Going on in, in, in Christ, Every believer will rise on that day when the last trumpet sounds and all believers rise to their glorified state. 1 Corinthians says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Again, Murray says, Union with Christ is a very inclusive subject and embraces the wide span of salvation from its ultimate source in the eternal election of God to its final fruition in the glorification of the elect. As we go into the book of Ephesians, we'll see over and over how union with Christ is the basis of our salvation. For now, just let it blow your mind that you were united to him even before the foundation of the world and will be united to him in eternity future. And don't mishear me, none of that undermines the absolute necessity to obey the call of the gospel to repent and believe. 
We do not become actual partakers of Christ until redemption is effectually applied. Again, quoting Murray. So I certainly would recommend that book to you if you heard the call to go deeper into doctrine last week and said, I should probably do that. Murray, redemption accomplished and applied. We are saved by God's initiative. We are saved by union with Christ. And third, we are saved to be holy and blameless. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So when I go hiking with my family, I have to pick a uh, hike that has something like great at the end of it. Like it has to have a mountaintop, it has to have a, a, a waterfall, something like that, because then I can tell my kids and my wife that there is something exciting to look forward to at the end that makes the whole like journey they're looking for it or worth it. Um, so I say that to say, if you'll hang with me through some explanation here, I do think that there's a great mountaintop view coming on this point. That we should be holy and blameless before him is a statement of purpose. It's a, in this sentence, it serves as a subordinate purpose underneath the higher purpose of to the praise of his glorious grace. So why did he choose us? He choose us, chose us in order to make us holy and blameless before him. And then by being holy and blameless, we would result in the praise of his glorious grace. This is the second use of the word holy that we see even in this short section. As you can recall from last week, that word for saints in verse 1 is the word holy ones. The word here used for blameless is the same word, if you look at Greek translations of the Old Testament, it's the same word used over and over again for without blemish. So you see in Leviticus, if you read through the book of Leviticus, uh, without blemish, bring a, bring a sacrifice without blemish. Over and over you see without blemish. And so even later in chapter 5, they take the same word and they translate it, not blameless, but they translate it without blemish. So Paul is here making an allusion to Old Testament sacrifices to speak of the purpose of election. He chose us that we should be made acceptable by God's highest standard. We should be that kind of sacrifice before him that is completely set apart and completely without blemish. Now, we know on our own we'll never meet such a righteously exacting standard. Like, the Christian, even saved for many years, even grown in Christ for many years, can never read on our own merit, on our report card, 100, holy and without blemish, arrived at Christian perfection. Okay, that's never the grade that we get on our own merit. When the Bible speaks of the Christian's holiness, one of three things can be in view. First, holiness can refer to what is, can be called a positional holiness, which is on our own, we fall short of the standard of righteousness required by God, but by faith in Christ, his holiness and righteousness can be credited to us that as God looks upon the believer, he sees the holiness of Christ. 
This is a freedom from the penalty of sin. Second, holiness can refer to what can be called a practical holiness. This is maybe what we think of most when we, talk, when we think about holiness. Where we were previously enslaved to sin, in Christ, we've been made new and freed from being enslaved to sin so that we can actually walk out and grow in a practical holiness, that there can be a real growing amount of spiritual fruit in our life. This is freedom from the power of sin. Third, holiness can refer to the final holiness, or if you like big words, an eschatological holiness that is dealing with the end over against, like Christian perfection, like we've already talked about, we know that we never arrive at perfect holiness in this life. We'll never be able to take our foot off the gas pedal of trying to become more like Christ. However, in our death or in his return, the process of sanctification is immediately perfected. In that moment, we will be in our glorified state completely and actually holy, never again to wrestle with the flesh. Okay, this is freedom from the presence of sin, a final holiness. So all that, which is in view here? Most narrowly, it's the third sense of our final holiness, which is in view. We can see that because the language there before him calls to mind standing before a judge, so that we would be holy and blameless before him when we stand before God. But you can never truly separate the three senses of holiness because they all hang together. In order to be holy on that day when you stand before God, you must have been made holy by receiving Christ's righteousness by faith. And the fruit of receiving Christ's righteousness by faith is always to grow in actual holiness by a changed life. So then the holy and blameless has final holiness, but not without reference to the others. Now, that's the technical work. That's the theology. But the theology must always lead to doxology, which is what we talked about last week. So you can lean back in your chair with me for the praise part as we take a quick second pass at this. Understanding it now, let's take a second pass. When God, in eternity past, looked upon you and said, mine, there's a problem that has to be overcome you and I are separated from him by our sin, but from eternity past, his plan was to qualify you in Christ for that day when you stand before him. You must be holy and blameless on that day, lest you be eternally rejected by him. And so he made the provision that you would have all of the qualifications necessary on that day because in Christ you receive all of the qualifications necessary to stand before him. Verse 4 spans from eternity past before the foundation of the world to eternity future with a ridiculous lavish gospel that he chose us and in Christ he qualified us for eternity with him. If you're here today and you are not a believer, then 
First, we're glad that you're here. We hope that you find Antioch to be a safe place to hear out the claims of the gospel, to wrestle with your questions and your doubts. If you get nothing else this morning, then get this. If you have not yet trusted in Christ, then you remain separated from God by your sin. And you can never, you can never measure up to his highest standard. You will never clean yourself up to the point that you can stand before him on that day. You need a righteousness that's beyond you. You need the cross of Christ. And if you've never trusted in Christ to save you and had your life changed by him, then you really don't need to concern yourself this morning with figuring out all of how it works. There's plenty of room for that on the other side of surrendering to him. If that's you today, my plea with you is this, that you would cease with any thought of earning your own way and cease with living life your way Lay all of that down today and turn and trust in Christ. Fourth, church, we are saved into his family to receive a full inheritance. Uh, he came down the steps a moment ago. Ming greets me. He says, I'm in the family now. Not by his baptism. He was in the family at the time that he placed his faith in Christ. We are saved into his family to receive a full inheritance. Elaborating on what it means that he chose us, Paul says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Here, election is framed in loving, affectionate, relational terms. Predestination happens in love. And it's a predestination for adoption to himself. That is, by faith in the gospel that was planned by the Father, he's bringing us into his family. As Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Church, never again let predestination be thought of as a cold, distant, austere doctrine. Predestination is the loving, affectionate, gracious work of the Father to make you part of his family. This brings the corporate nature of salvation in. To be united to Christ is always to be united to the whole body of Christ. It's adoption into the family. Union with Christ means union with the church. And that's a union with the church global, yes, but it should be expressed by union with the local church as it always is in the New Testament. The plan of the Father before the foundation of the world was to set apart a people for himself a family. Okay, it's necessarily both individual and personal, and it's also corporate. It's a personal and that you must yourself individually trust in Christ, but it's corporate and that by trusting in Christ, you're brought into the body of Christ together to live out your Christian life in community. 
Ephesians has much more to say about that in the weeks and months ahead. But look with me now more closely at this and hear me out before you get mad. Um, There are times in the New Testament where you should read word like brothers and what you, and it should encompass something, it should encompass brothers and sisters. Or you should read word like sons, and really what's in view is sons and daughters. This is not one of them. Rather, what Paul is highlighting here by using the word sons is that we are full heirs. In the Roman adoption system familiar to the context around Ephesus, the sons were the one who were heirs to the inheritance. So by analogy to the context of his day, Paul is making a statement about the quality of our adoption. It's an adoption receiving a full inheritance. Every one of us who are in Christ, whether man or woman, all of us receive a full share of the inheritance because we are co-heirs with Christ. God has adopted, but not at a second rate. We are full heirs. So this would have been received as a statement of lavish grace to the Ephesian church hearing this letter. And then note how this thread of inheritance is something that Paul will pick up later in the verses ahead. We are adopted as full heirs so that we receive the inheritance of verse 11, and already we receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment in verse 13, and then on into verse 18, we see again the riches of his glorious inheritance. So here he said you're adopted with a full, as with a full heir, And then we talk later in this section about the inheritance. And we receive all of that because he has predestined us to adoption as full heirs. Last thing to note before I turn to highlight a few quick points of application. We are saved for his glory. We are chosen by God. Part of the elect. That can feel a little awkward to say, right? Like some of you are probably thinking, well, that sounds elitist. Look at you, you're chosen. Don't worry, church. You don't have to feel that way at all. Because he didn't choose you for anything about you. He chose you simply according to the good pleasure of his will. I love the ESV. On this point, I just think it gets the translation wrong. I at least want a footnote down there where I can see there. The, all the other close-by translations, all of them translate with some form of according, in verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will or the the loving kindness of his will, if you have NIV, if you have the New King James, if you have anything else. And every commentary I consulted on this, which is like seven, translates this verse according to the good pleasure of his will. 
In fact, I could find no one to even make a case for translating it as the ESV does according to the purpose of his will, except one footnote that says the ESV misses the mark on this. So, um, therefore, I, Tyler, with two undergrad Greek classes under my belt here in Houston, Georgia, week two as a teaching pastor, mind you, I hereby change the ESV to say good pleasure in verse five and then again in verse nine. That's what we're doing this morning. So, um, election, predestination, adoption, all of this occurs without any sort of merit by us, the recipients. It was only according to the good pleasure of his will. God has not, he has not looked down the corridors of time and elected only those that he knew would believe. He's not like the high school boy weighing his dating prospects and only choosing to ask out the girls that he knows will say yes. That's not what election is. Likewise, God has not looked into the corridors of time looked upon you and said, eh, that one's not so bad. I think I can work with that. No, he looked upon you and he needed to make you holy and without blemish precisely because you were unholy and quite blemished. Rather, God chooses who he chooses by the sheer good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or in Romans, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is the same as when he chose Israel your people holy to the Lord. This is Deuteronomy 7. Your people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So fear not, church. You don't have to feel elitist by any of this. If anything, he looked at you and he said, there's someone I can get my glory through. Watch the makeover I can do in that life. That'll bring me glory. And then finally, I remind you that all of this he has done to the praise of his glorious grace, to show off his glory. As we close, let me give you three Brief thoughts of application that you can work out further in your base group this evening. You say, why does the doctrine of election matter? Like, what am I supposed to do with these truths? There are many applications, but I will give you just three briefly. Number one, it should result in awe and praise. We think about a God so beyond our understanding, and we just simply marvel. We think about his ridiculous, lavish grace, and we ought to be floored and humbled. How can it be? So application one, awe and praise. Number two, assurance and perseverance. The doctrine of election ought to be a balm for your soul. If you could lose your salvation, hear me, you would. You would. 
If it depended on you, you would break. But it doesn't depend on you. It depends on the one who qualified you. If you've cast all your faith on the cross of Christ and you bear the biblical fruit of repentance in your life, then rest in his grace knowing that it's always been about God qualifying you in Christ. Look to Christ's perfection and know that's what God sees when you stand before him on that day. Cease with any thought of earning. It's all been earned for you. Third, confidence in evangelism. Election ought to fuel evangelism. Sorry, not sorry, if that takes a flamethrower to your straw man objection, but election ought to fuel evangelism. Also, sorry, not sorry, if you've misapplied this doctrine to justify laziness in the mission. You're going to have to try again also. Jesus' words that we read earlier, read earlier from in John chapter 15 speak of an election unto the task of evangelism. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. You can go and check me on it. The fruit that he has in view there is the fruit of mission. Moreover, John 6, Jesus says that the Father, that Jesus says that he will not lose one that the Father has given him. John 6, 37 through 40, you can read that on your own. John 10, Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Our call to hold out the gospel to everyone we can is not changed by the doctrine of election. Election fuels it because we know that he has other sheep out there that he longs to adopt into the family, and when we go with the gospel, they will hear his voice calling. So you can be bold because you know no matter how hardened someone looks, how far gone that they are, God can sovereignly work in their life because salvation is always about him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word once again. God, I pray that you would Help us to do the work of mulling these over, Lord, that we wouldn't just walk out of here um, putting it away, but Lord, we would actually think on the truth of your word. Father, I pray that you would use this to comfort your people, that you would work in us in awe and praise, Lord, that you would work in us an assurance of your grace. Father, let that not be abused by anyone, Lord, who doesn't know you. Let them make their calling and election sure. Let them work out their salvation in fear and trembling. But Lord, for those that you have adopted, comfort them with these truths. Lord, let this be a word from, from Ephesians here, Father, that helps us to persevere in the faith, Lord, knowing that since you've been working in us long before even the foundation of the world, 
you continue working in us now. For you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And Father, I do pray that this would put a fuel in our desire to see others come to know you. Father, let this create in us a boldness to go with the gospel, a humility that says we don't know what, who is part of the elect, who you've sovereignly chosen. Therefore, we're going to share the gospel with anybody that we get the opportunity with. Father, I pray that you would do that work in us now. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.